There, there's something that's very wrong with the way we approach our lives. We stay in the area of our lives where a code is available, where a certain playbook, a certain rule book, a certain design is available. And just to bring us back to where we were before the break, I'm suggesting that there's something very deeply embedded within me as a scared man that wants there to be a code in every important area of my life, a code for how to deal with my wife, a code for how to deal with whatever I'm doing, a code that provides me with two things, just to reiterate my last point before we take it up again, a code that provides me with two things, provides me with rules that guide what I do enough to protect me from the risk of serious failure, and secondly, I would like rules that guarantee a reward if I keep them. I'm going to come down here partly for photographic reasons. I've been asked to step down here for just a moment and to talk with you a bit. This is photographic license here, folks. Hello, how are you? Nice to feel natural and relaxed. There's no code for this. I have no idea what I'm doing, but, uh, but we'll just have the courage to be a man here. Um, one of the... I was just talking with, uh, with a new friend over the break, and he gave me permission to talk about this. He was a pilot in the uh, Iraqi war. He was with our troops over there, and he flew a number of missions uh, over Iraq and dropped the bombs and saw the tanks down below and saw the enemy, and he'd drop his bombs and do his thing, and they'd shoot at him, and he'd fly back to base. And he was telling me just literally ten minutes ago, he said, what you're saying is ringing true, because when I was, was dropping bombs, knowing that the enemy was down there, I knew my enemy, I knew how to fly a plane, I knew how to drop a bomb, I knew how to handle the instruments in my instrument board that would tell me what to do and where to get out and what to do at a certain time. And he said, I was more terrified in coming home to my wife than I ever was in moving toward the Iraqis. That's the point that I'm making. Doesn't speak well for his wife, perhaps, but... And the fact of the matter is that I'm sure that his wife is a delightful woman like mine is. How come we're terrified of delightful women? How come we're terrified in certain spheres of our life where there simply seems to be no code? It's interesting to observe, and this is a very common observation all of us would agree with, it's interesting to observe that the real artists of our time, the ones who make the biggest impact in our culture, in whatever their field, whether it's sports or music or literature or science, they're the ones who don't live in their field by a code. Is that true? Think of the Michael Jordans. Does he live by a code? Do you ever try to imitate what he does? The issue is he doesn't follow the normal basketball rules. The story was told last year in the playoffs when the Bulls were playing against the Pistons that Phil Jackson had called a timeout at a crucial point in the game. And um, he, was, he had, a, had a play he wanted his players to get involved with. And he said, all right, Scotty, I want you to do this, and uh, I want you to do this, uh, Horace, and I want you to do this, Bill. And, and, um, and as he gave these instructions to, his, to, to four of his five starting players, he then turned to Michael, the fifth player, and he said to him, he said, um, Michael, you just do what you do. Because what Michael does is not something which can be programmed. There's no code for the way he handles a basketball. Same thing is true of John McEnroe, arguably the best tennis player ever, one of the least well socialized, but one of the best tennis players ever. <laughs> Remember the story about how Bjorn Borg learned to keep his cool? When he was um, playing tennis as a kid, and he was spending eight hours a day as a teenage kid, one time he was playing and his mother was on the sidelines. He was about 14 years old, and he missed a shot, and he threw his racket and swore. 
His mother walked out on the court and took his racket from him and said, you won't see it again for six months. The man learned how to keep his cool. Don't you wish, don't you wish she would have adopted John? <laughs> but John is a guy, if you watch him, you know much about tennis, he doesn't hit one shot in an orthodox way. You watch his volleys when he serves and runs up to the net and returns it. He never does anything right. You're supposed to have your wrist beneath the head of the racket. He's always kind of like this. He does everything wrong. The true artists of our time don't live by code. The true geniuses of our time don't live by code. How sad it is to see young men coming out of seminary beginning their preaching career by trying to live by the code they learned in homiletics class. Either that was a frustrated pastor or a frustrated person who has to listen to a frustrated pastor. Because <laughs> you know what it is, is you watch these young guys, well-meaning, good guys, and not knocking the guys at all, but they get behind a pulpit and their response is, all right, you're supposed to gesture now. You know, and I made a point and I'm supposed to point and do something like that. And as they do that, you're sitting there feeling like this, is, this does not make you comfortable as you're in the audience. When are you comfortable when you're in the audience? When you're listening to somebody, when you go to, years ago I went to hear, I went to watch Jimmy Durante do a show. When you go to see an old seasoned pro, something inside he gets comfortable. Why? He's not living by a code saying, here's what I'm supposed to do, I hope I can do it. He's rather saying, here's who I am and I'm going to give it to you. And it's a world of difference. It's a world of difference. Difficulty is that in the areas of life that are most important, there really is no code for us to live by. And we're not sure that if we live without a code, that what we give is going to be well received. If I were to go to a t on a tennis court and just hit the ball the way that comes naturally to me, I probably would never win a game. I've got to listen to the pro say to me, no, do it this way. You follow a code. You're not good enough to not follow a code. When I played tennis in college, I remember one time I got mad after missing a shot, and the coach stopped the match, came over to me and said, Larry, you're not good enough to get mad. <laughs> you see what he's saying? He's saying that what's in you is not terribly talented, so therefore what you must do is do your best to live by the rules, and when you don't do them very well, don't be all that surprised, but don't veer from the rules at all because you don't have much talent. Isn't that how most of us feel in the relational spheres of life? What do we do when we face a decision, when we face a situation for which there's no code? Do we see ourselves as geniuses who are free to move? Or do we rather freeze? Do we rather demand? And do we rather retreat? Isn't it true we freeze? I'm not sure what to do. The rules are not available to me. And then I demand there ought to be somebody who's going to tell me what to do, or in the absence of that, tell me it's okay that I don't know what to do. And when they don't do it, then I tend to retreat and back off. My wife, last weekend, which that story I told you about coming home on Sunday, she had spent the weekend at a women's retreat. And um, we were chatting about some of the material I'll be teaching today. And my wife said this to me, a very interesting situation. She talked to several women at this ladies' retreat she did last weekend, several women who told stories that were similar, that ran along this line. They said that they were engaged to, to a man to be married, and the engagement was going along well, everything was fine. And then in the middle of the engagement, as they got into a heavy discussion, the woman would tell her fiancé, 
as they were sharing very deeply and vulnerably and wanting to build the kind of intimacy and closeness in a relationship which they both longed for, the woman said, well, I, I need to tell you something. I, I want to tell you something. I have a history of sexual abuse. My father, when I was 12, required me to have intercourse with him. And what these three women who talked to my wife said basically was this. They said, when I told my fiancé about my history with sexual abuse, at that moment I probably felt worse by looking in his face than I felt during the actual abuse. Because it was clear when I let my husband know, or my fiancé, the man who was going to be my husband, and I let him know what was happening inside of me, that this man just froze. It was just kind of a, what, what, what do I do now? I didn't want that kind of problem. I didn't want to have to handle that, because I don't know what to do with that. Tell me how to handle I don't know what to do with that. And so the guy would just kind of freeze and do nothing. And the woman at that point, her phrase was something like this, I've never felt uglier in my life. I never felt more dangerous in my life. I really cannot be handled. And then after the freezing makes a woman feel like that, then there's the demand. And the demand is, why must you have that problem? Why can't you be different? Why not just don't bring it up? Why don't you go see a therapist and get yourself all fixed, then come back? And the three women she talked to, all three relationships were ended by the men shortly after that. I talked to a fellow two weeks ago when I was in Memphis. I had dinner with him. A guy that was about 38, never been married, and he had been engaged, and the engagement just got broken off for similar reasons. His fiance told him that she had a history of sexual abuse. And gentlemen, if you're getting, if you're getting married these days, the chances are that uh, every, every, out of every ten of you, three or four of you, maybe five, are married women who have been sexually abused. And you're like me. You don't know what to do. I'm in that situation. And I don't know what to do sometimes. And this gentleman I talked with last week in Memphis said this. He said that we were engaged and I was excited about it. I'm 38 and I've stayed single all these years and I found a woman that I really fell in love with. And when she told me about her sexual abuse, she said, he, said, he said, I basically told her I just plain can't handle it. Let's not talk about it. And she broke the engagement. And now she's involved, she's engaged now to a man who's a drug addict. A man who's living a very irresponsible life. This gentleman was a very responsible man. Why would she go to a, to a drug addict, a man who's living a very irresponsible life? Think that through. We don't know what to do in certain cases in life. One of the guys said to his fiancée, who was sexually abused, he put it this way, he hid behind some Christian language, said something terribly weak. I would say it's a violation of authentic manhood. He said to her, I don't think God would have me marry anyone who isn't a virgin. That's not godly. That's not manhood. I can appreciate the concerns in those areas and the desires to, to live a godly life and to be with somebody that never has had sex before and that you're a virgin as well and that you want to have marriage by moral design. I understand that and I'm all for it. I think it's wonderful. But what is really being said here is something very different than a desire to honor God's morality of what I would suggest to you. I think that sentence really is emasculine junk. It's not what he meant. Like all of us, but he didn't know what to do. He just backed off. Now, where are we so far? There's something wrong in men I'm suggesting that makes us want to live by code. We don't want to do anything where the stakes are high and the risk of failure is high. We want to code a playbook that looks like it should work 
And the difficulty is that in many spheres of the lives that you and I lead, there is a code that most of us can, can follow in, in most areas of life. There is a way to handle most things. There are principles of business. There are scientific procedures for doing root canal if you're a dentist. There are proper ways to keep accounting records. There are mechanical laws that guide you as you work on your car if you know them. But in the most important area of all, relationships, the only area that really matters, ultimately, what is there? Answer? There's only a general code at best. And within the general code that can guide me as I husband and father and friend and son and disciple and the various relationships of my life that I'm called to live in, there's only a general code that is very broad that requires me to make a lot of decisions, now listen, without guidance. Nobody can tell me what to do. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Let me illustrate what I mean by freezing and demanding and retreating when we're faced with a relational situation where there's no code. Two weeks ago, on Sunday morning, I woke up early. About, oh, six maybe. You to get up around seven on Sunday morning, but I got up at six. I woke up. I couldn't sleep. And what was on my mind as I woke up was this men's seminar. I've been thinking about this hard for the last six months. And um, it's been a very elusive concept for me to think through the material that I'm going to present to you today. But I woke up Sunday morning two weeks ago thinking about this, and a couple of thoughts began to occur. And so I got out of bed, grabbed my pad of yellow paper, got my pen, made a cup of coffee, and went to the living room and sat down and began jotting out some thoughts and thinking some things and writing out some ideas. And as I was sitting there, two weeks ago Sunday morning at about oh, 6.30 by now, I suppose, I remember it, it felt like some ideas were coming. Those of you, uh, all of you in different areas of life, you know what it means when certain things start to click? It's kind of like a golf game some days. You just can't hit anything straight. Other days, this kind of works. Do you have no idea why? Well, that's what it was like Sunday morning. It began to work. My mind began to flow and some thoughts. And I was thinking, yeah, that's good. That makes sense. Well, that fits. That's good. And my first thought was, I don't want to leave this situation. I was feeling really good. Because there was something creative, it felt like, coming out of me. And I was feeling good about myself. And I was feeling powerful, strong, alive. And it was a good morning. And then my thought was, you know what? I don't want to break this up. I think I'll skip church today. I think I'll just stay home and not go to church with my wife and my son. And I'll just stay here and work all day on this, uh, on this men's stuff, or at least all morning. Because uh, you never can tell how long the energy is going to last. But it seemed to be going. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll spend the morning working on this. My very next thought was, now you all stay ahead of me. You've all been in similar situations. Stay ahead of me. My very next thought was, Rachel has made it clear over the years that she's not really comfortable going to church without me. And she said on several occasions, not in a demanding way, not in a vicious way, not in an unkind way, she said that there are times, and I'm out of town on a Sunday, that she just wouldn't go because she just feels a whole lot better going with me and doesn't really like going to church all that much without me. So I'm sitting there thinking, I want to stay home. What should I do? That's the first thing you think. What's the rules? All right, there's the enemy, there's the Iraqi tank. What do I do? Pull this lever, hit a bomb, drop a bomb, hit the tank, take off. That's fine. I can handle that because there's a code. What do I do here? Stay out from church? How do I tell my wife? Is that a big deal? Are you all as wimpy as this, I trust? 
somehow I have a certain confidence that keeps me going here. That's a rather rich form of wimpiness in my mind. It keeps me thinking well of myself as I wimp out. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, all right, what, what's, the, what's the best thing to do? Should I just basically go to church and, uh, and, um, and, 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 and give up the, the moment of creative energy, or should I keep with it? And, and I'm thinking, you know, I know what's going to happen. My wife's still sound asleep. She's in bed. She'll be getting up in a little while. And if I say to her, what I'll do is she'll, she'll come out into the, from the bedroom into the kitchen area in the living room where I'm sitting writing. As she comes out, and these thoughts go through my mind. And gentlemen, my guess is they go through all your minds because we're all crazy as loons. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, as she comes out, I'll, I'll at that point choose to write a little more furiously. And I'll be going, ooh, yeah, ooh, ooh. And she'll look down and go, wow, boy, it's great, you know. And I'll go, oh, honey, it's fantastic. Come listen to this, listen to this. Well, I think I better stay home and just work on this all day. I mean, this is great. That's what I thought of doing. And then I thought, what's she going to do? Well, she's a great wife. She really is. And my prediction was that she'd, she'd say something like, oh, well, I'd, I'd be fine. It's not what I wanted. What do you want from your wife at that point? Oh, honey, I'm just so proud of the way your mind works at moments, and to cut this off would be just the, the worst wicked thing in the world. I'm thrilled that you're staying home this morning because I'm taking all of my energy and supporting all of you in the process. And I thought to, I thought to myself as I'm sitting on the couch there, she's not going to do that. And then I thought, doggone her. Before she's awake, I'm mad. Because it occurred to me, she might say something like, well, you know, why don't you come to church and then work this afternoon and skip the, the game that you wanted to watch, you know, something like that. <laughs> and right away I'm thinking, you don't, you just don't understand, you're just not supportive. And I wasn't sure what to do. Don't you hate when your wife gives you solutions when you aren't asking for them? It drives you crazy. So I continue thinking, what does it mean to love my wife? I do love my wife. I want to love my wife. I want to be a responsible man in this situation. I have a seminar that I'm going to deliver in two weeks. And I feel like now there's something creative happening. And I want to honor that. I want to honor my wife. I want to live my life responsibly. I want to be what I really ought to be. But what is it? And the difficulty is, I'm demanding a response to a question that nobody can answer. Do you see that point? If we took a poll in this room of 300 and some men, what's the best thing to do? There aren't that many options, so you wouldn't have 300 options, but there certainly would not be unanimity. And if, you, and if I come to you as a counselor, and you're a very skilled counselor, and I say, what should I do? You really don't know. See, one of the great hard things about being a counselor is people ask us questions all the time for which we have no answer. That's why we have to, now listen, reframe the question. If what you're fundamentally asking is, what am I supposed to do? You'll never enjoy manhood. I'm asking a question nobody will and nobody can answer. And when that situation arises, I'm confronted with my responsibility to speak with creative courage into chaos. It's dark. 
and I must move and I have no flashlight. I don't know what to do. There's no clear right or wrong. If God would appear in a vision and say, this is the right thing to do, in most cases like that one, I'd be willing to do it. Why doesn't somebody just tell me? Talking to a parent recently whose kids are older now and there's been some real problems. There's been a, an ugly divorce. There's been some drug difficulties. And the parent is saying now, as he's reading certain books on how to be a father, he's saying, why didn't somebody tell me to do this earlier? Who's he mad at, do you suppose, ultimately? And God. Himself and God. God, it seems to me that if you're going to give me the responsibility of kids, why couldn't you write a clearer book? Why couldn't you say, here's six things to keep in mind? You didn't write a book like that. We all face situations in lives in our lives where we're confronted with our responsibility to speak with creative courage into chaos, to make a decision based on something within me when it is simply not clear what I should do. Do I believe that there's something called manhood, something about the reality of who I am, that goes way beyond what you can see as you look at me externally and see a pair of glasses and see a green suit and see a tie and see a guy that's about 5'10 and, and you know that I'm a psychologist and you know that I'm lecturing to you now about manhood. And when you see beneath all that, do you realize that within my soul there's been a, uh, there's been a deposit placed, call it clay, waiting to be shaped. Call it my manhood. Call it some reality within me, which in a situation like Sunday morning, what I'm required to do is to reach in with my two hands, grab that clay, and mold it according to my decision within obvious moral limits. There's always moral limits. But within those moral limits that I wish were narrower, then I'd know what to do. But the limits are like this, and I've got to shape the clay and bring that out and present it to the world, and I'm terrified to do so. Gentlemen, Here's our hope. Our hope is not that we can all be like Michael Jordan in the basketball court. When he releases himself, he does things that no man does. We can't be Rembrandt with a palette. When he releases himself, he does things that very few others can do. When Van Cliburn sits down at the piano and lets himself go, he does things that your ordinary church pianist would never dream of being able to do. We're not geniuses in these areas, are we? And we must therefore, in those areas of life, get some instruction and be grateful for the code and do our best to follow our tennis pro's instructions. But we're called upon as men, and if we began doing this, our wives, our friends would rejoice, not right away, but eventually. We're called upon as men to be creative geniuses in relationship. And if we have the courage, we can be because we already have the equipment. There's 350 men in this room. About three believe that. And that's probably optimistic. You and I are called upon to be creative geniuses on Sunday morning when you don't know whether to stay home and work on your men's seminar or go to church with your wife. We're called upon to be creative geniuses 
when our wife says, I hate you and I'm terrified of you. We're called upon to be creative geniuses when our best efforts don't work and we have no idea what to do next. We're called upon to be creative geniuses when we're in relationship with a friend and it's gone sour and we don't, know, we don't have any idea how to put it together. And we know there's nobody who can tell us what to do. A good friend of mine who died about a year and a half ago, a man named Chuck Smith, a theologian. He was with my associate, Dan Allender, and I four or five years ago in a hotel. And he was having some major problems in a relationship in his life. And he said to my associate and I, both psychologists, he said, well, I got you two shrinks in this room. Let me get some free advice out of you. So he said, sure, good friend. He said, here's my situation. What should I do? And um, Dan went first, and he shared a little bit of what he thought Chuck ought to do in this situation. And as Dan is going on for a few minutes about his perspective on Chuck's situation, I found myself thinking, I, I don't agree with that. And so when Dan finished, I said to Dan, I said, I don't, I don't think that's good advice. I think you missed the point of what's happening with Chuck. Well, what do you think, Larry? And I said, well, what I think is this. And I gave my ideas, and Dan said, well, that doesn't make sense for these reasons. And, and Dan and I got into a fight. <laughs> and here's Chuck standing over here, and we're fighting what's best to do. And in the middle of our argument, Chuck just burst out laughing, caught our attention, and we said, what are you laughing about? He said, this is great. You two experts haven't got a clue. <laughs> and he said, what that does, and his words to me make sense now, they didn't then in certain ways. He said, I feel a liberation inside, realizing that there's nobody who can tell me what to do. I feel a freedom to mold my clay. He didn't use that metaphor, but I think he would have if he'd have thought of it. You and I are called upon to be creative geniuses in a relationship. And until we learn what that elegant sounding phrase means, my guess is we're not going to enjoy a manhood in any significant way at all. Let me put it to you this way. There's an essence to what I mean when I talk about authentic manhood. And I would put it along these lines. The essence of authentic manhood, and let me use different words that are on the overhead. They're simply an elaboration of what I have written there. The essence of authentic manhood, manhood is moving into situations where we feel entirely paralyzed. The essence of authentic manhood, different words for the same thing on the overhead, is moving into situations where we feel entirely paralyzed by the fear of inadequacy and failure. And finding something within that moves us into the situation. Finding something within, within us, within me. Finding something within that moves us into that situation. To use what is there on behalf of another. Let me say it again. Moving into situations, the essence of manhood, you can copy the overhead, here's a different way of putting it. The essence of manhood is moving into situations where you feel entirely paralyzed by the fear of inadequacy and failure. Finding something within that moves us into the situation, the one that causes fear, finding something within us that moves us into the situation to use what is there on behalf of another. 
Let me put it one more way. It's a central point of the day. Let me put it one more way. Authentic manhood is creating a response out of the shapeless substance of our souls. Creating a response out of the shapeless substance of our souls and then offering it to our world in order to pass on life. Creating a response out of the shapeless substance of our souls and then offering it to our world in order to pass on life. Creating a response out of the shapeless substance of our souls and then offering it to our world in order to pass on life. Most of us, I would suggest, never have the opportunity to experience masculinity at that level. And it's our fault. Does that make sense? Most of us never have the opportunity to experience masculinity at that level. And it's our fault. Why? Because we're determined to find some way and we're usually successful. Masculinity has many resources that can be used in counterfeit ways. We find some way to stay away from those moments where fear overwhelms us. We find some way to never experience that sense of paralysis. We find some way to never experience the chaos where only creative courage is an adequate response. We depend on our brains, our personality, our power to intimidate, our shyness, our pushiness, our sense of humor, our money, to avoid the reality that in many of our relationships those moments occur every day. When Rachel told me how she felt toward me, it really hurt. 25 years of marriage, and we're sitting on the bed saying that there's not much between us that's enjoyable. Our son, who's with us today, his fiance, had just come out to visit for the weekend, a surprise visit. And they're very much in love, and it's wonderful to watch. My wife went and got her at the airport, surprise for Ken, and she's coming home with my wife to surprise Ken. I'm home knowing Carolyn's coming. On the way home, she was saying to my wife, my wife told me this later, that she would say, I'm only eight miles away now from Kenny, and he thinks I'm in Indiana. Now I'm only five miles away. Now I'm only three miles away. Now I'm only ten feet away. And I'm going to walk up and knock on the door, and he's going to answer it, and he thinks I'm in Indiana, and I'm going to stand there. And she's all excited. Why? Because she knows the response she's going to get, and she got it. Well, what she actually got was he went... Literally 15 seconds. And she finally, I was there watching this, and she finally went, can I come in? You know, uh, sure, you know. This girl looks like Carolyn. What, you know. It's a wonderful thing. And I found myself thinking, you know, that's how Rachel and I felt 25 years ago, too. 25 years later, We have something a whole lot better than Kenny and Carolyn have today. 
They'll have it in 25 years. And we have it now. But there are times I'd rather go back to the other. There are times I'd rather go back to the warmth and excitement where everything works just because it's so much fun. Where it's so neat. There's Rachel. How about that? I haven't seen you for a month. How you doing? Let's hug and kiss. And now it's I see her every day. How you doing? You're late. (laughs) A mature marriage is a marriage in which the couple falls out of love. A mature marriage is is a marriage where the couple is no longer in love, but they've learned how to love. World of difference in the two two concepts of being in love and loving. In love is the wonderful, appropriate, legitimate, enjoyable excitement of being engaged and seeing each other when you didn't expect to. Loving is what it means to learn how to swim. And don't hear this as a pejorative sentence against the in love experience of younger folks. But love is learning how to swim and forever giving up the waiting pool. But so many of us want that waiting pool and we go to pornography to get it, other women to get it, spending money on things we can't afford to get it, just the excitement of little kids splashing in a pool. It's wonderful. For young folks, as you mature, you're required to learn something about love. But that means I've got to face what's happening when Rachel and I now, having lost some of that just wonderful excitement of youth, are now having to deal with the reality of our souls before each other. And she sits there and says, I don't like you. I don't want to get to this point. I don't want to get to the chaos. So I'm going to avoid the chaos. How do we avoid the chaos? How do we avoid the opportunities to ever become men? Lots of ways. Things like anger. What do you mean you're mad at me for crying out loud? What have I done wrong? All I did was ask where the stupid tape was. Gee whiz. Let's just forget about it. We'll be fine in the morning. I'm committed to you. I love you. That's it. (laughs) Or if not anger, then how about self-contempt? Man, I'm awful. You're right. I've just... I feel like like poison. Take a bite of me. You're going to get sick. How can anybody want somebody like me? That's manipulative. Your wife hates it every time you say it. Or sullenness. There's just not much to say. What are we running away from with all those kind of maneuverings and a thousand other ones? See, we're creative geniuses at avoiding the opportunities to be creative genius. Anything to avoid the feeling of sheer powerlessness that scares the tar out of me as a man. I don't want to face the sheer powerlessness that I feel, having no idea in the world what to do. Having no idea in the world what to do in any given situation is the opportunity for masculine genius to express itself in courageously creating a response in the middle of chaos. Have you noticed how rarely you feel like a genius in relationships? Almost sounds like a silly metaphor, doesn't it? Nobody's called me a genius recently in areas of relationships. Nor in the tennis court or not too many places. I would suggest that the reason that we don't know much about this kind of movement is that something's missing. It's my next topic.
Something's missing. Something's wrong. We don't respond with creative courage and chaos. We avoid the chaos and look for a rule book and go wherever the rule book guides us. And that one of the reasons we tend to do that is because we feel internally like something's missing. Our wallet is empty and the bills are due. Well, what's missing? It's my next topic. For those areas of life where there is no code, and that's every important area in your lives, for those areas of life where there is no code, we need some basis for confidence that we can move into confusing situations with courage and creativity. For those areas in life where there is no code, we need some basis for confidence that we can move into confusing situations with courage. We can speak into situations with courage. And I would suggest that there's two things that provide that sense. What's missing in most of our lives is the rich experience of fatherhood that many of us don't know much about. And the rich experience of brotherhood that just as few, perhaps, know much about. Fatherhood. Somebody who can powerfully say in a way that our souls hear, I believe in you. And when 25 years later, your wife sits in the bed and says she hates you, you can handle it. Because I've handled it. You can handle it too. Fatherhood. Somebody who can powerfully say, I know what you're going through. I've been there. I've walked that path. And I found out I have what it takes. And guess what? I've given it to you. You have what it takes as well. I've passed on life to you. Let's talk about these two concepts, fatherhood. And then after we discuss that, brotherhood. I mentioned the name Chuck Smith, who was liberated when he realized Dan and I differed on important questions. One of the most important people in my life, Chuck was. I miss him. He died a year and a half ago. Before he died, he has two boys, like I have two boys. You know what his son said to him? Son Doug. I'm not sure how old Doug is, 28, 30, 32, somewhere in there. He said to his dad, he said, Dad, I, I've got to tell you, it'll sound harsh and rude. I don't mean it that way at all. I hope you don't hear it as harsh and rude. But I'm really, really glad you're going to die before me. And the reason I'm glad you're going to die before me is somehow knowing that you'll already have walked that path will make it easier when my time comes. The effect of fatherhood in our souls is profound. And most of us, for most of us, it's missing. When I was about four years ago, one of the lowest points of my life, after getting terrible news that plunged me into chaos, I didn't know what to do. I don't have a clue. No book written on what I had to deal with. I don't know what to do. You know who I sought out right away? Chuck. You know why? He's not a very good counselor. But he was in a class, and I went and found out where he was. He was teaching with me where I was teaching at the time. And I found out where he was sitting in a class. Actually, as a student, he normally taught, but he was taking a class. And I 
basically rudely interrupted the class and said, I need you now. I needed the effect of a father in my life right up front, right then. And Chuck came out and we went off and drove and we wept together and cried together and Chuck made a mistake. At one point he tried to counsel me. Number one, it's not what I wanted. Number two, he's not very good at it. And I never forget, as he was counseling me, I was a wreck. As he was saying, well, Larry, I wonder if maybe you ought to think about it this way. And he was all going on. And I remember thinking, oh, Chuck, that is not good counseling. You know, I write books on this stuff. I'm good at it. I know what I'm doing. You're missing it. Let me give you a suggestion here. Try this direction. Maybe this will be more helpful. <laughs> I didn't want his counsel. He's not very good at it. I, I didn't go to him for counsel in that normal sense of the word. But I'll tell you, he was the man I wanted. Why? I wanted to be with a man who had gone through what I had gone through, and in his case, far worse. I wanted to be with a man who had walked the path ahead of me and was still making it in a way that I respect. Does your dad qualify? Not many hands would go up. A couple would. I wanted to be with a man who had walked the path ahead of me and walked through every pothole and twisted his ankle like I have, faced every temptation and somehow not universally made it, but when he failed, knew how to repent and pick himself up. A man who had walked a path and struggled and failed and messed it up, but somehow was still on the path in a way that I could respect, that he somehow still believed there was reason to go on. I wanted a man with those qualifications. And I wanted him to listen to a very important phrase. I wanted him to not be overwhelmed by my distress. I wanted him to look at me and believe in me that somehow this terrible distress was something I could survive. I wanted him to stay calm. How do you feel when your doctor looks at your x-ray and begins crying? <laughs> oh my goodness, what do I do? And the doctor says, there's a real problem here. It's very, very serious. I can handle it. Somehow it's like, oh... Maybe we find the courage to create a response out of chaos when someone talks like that to us. We all want a father. The design was that we'd all have a father. Very few of us do. At a biological level, of course we all do. Somebody's sperm met somebody's egg that now is us. And for some of us, that's as far as fatherhood goes. Some of us are much more privileged as I am. All of us want a father. Let me define a father for you. I've already said it. Let me put it more systematically now. Our father is somebody who has walked the path ahead of us. The father is someone who's walked the path ahead of us. He's further along. He knows what it's like. And he's made it. The father is someone who's walked the path ahead of us. He's further along. He knows what it's like and he's made it. You have to define made it, don't you? I don't mean made it in terms of financial success or can handle himself in the athletic field. Those are nice things, but they aren't the essence of all at all. He's made it meaning there's something in my soul that when I look at that man who's made it, I say, he's worthy of respect. 
He's faced the terror of chaos. He's created something, and now what is there has power to it. It has passion. And when I'm in His presence, something inside of me gets energized. There's life being passed on. He's bloody from the battle, but He seems to know something about strength. He knows what it's like. And He's made it. A father is someone who's walked the path ahead of us. He's further along. He knows what it's like and He's made it. You have to define made it, don't you? I don't mean made it in terms of financial success or can handle himself in the athletic field. Those are nice things, but they aren't the essence of all at all. He's made it meaning there's something in my soul that when I look at that man who's made it, I say, he's worthy of respect. He's faced the terror of chaos. He's created something, and now what is there has power to it. It has passion. And when I'm in his presence, something inside of me gets energized. There's life being passed on. He's bloody from the battle, but he seems to know something about strength. The Father is someone who's walked the path ahead of me. He's further along. He knows what it's like. He's made it. He's bloody from the battle, but he seems to know something about strength. And then a father is one who looks back on the road we're walking. And he sees where we are because he's interested, cares. He sees our financial struggles. He sees our worries about a job. He sees our worries about money. He hears our worries about how we're raising our kids. He sees how we're desperately lonely. He sees how there are days we don't want to live. There are days when all of life seems as meaningless and pointless and useless and stupid. And all we want is relief. The best we can do is masturbate. And he looks back and he says, I've been there. I know the temptations. And he sees me. Head on the path, turns around, and I'm behind him, and he looks. And I know he knows, and therefore his words have power when he smiles calmly and he says, You're going to make it. You've got what it takes. You see, that's the big question we all ask. In the absence of a code, do I have what it takes? In the absence of a code, do I have what it takes to create a response to life that will bless a woman? Now listen to this. Do I have what it takes to create a response to life that will bless a woman? Empower a son? Make a daughter secure? And impact the world for good? In the absence of a code, do I have what it takes? I'm not sure. Come on, Dad, tell me. I don't even want to hear you talk, Dad, because you didn't have what it takes. Look at your life. You left us 30 years ago. You haven't talked to me since. And you write me a letter and say, let's get together for Christmas. Well, take a hike. Is there anybody out there that's further ahead on the path and I respect them and they know me well, they care about me uniquely? And they say to me, Larry, there's no code for what you're going to be facing for the next 20, 30 years of your life in the important areas. And you have what it takes to create a response to life that will bless a woman, empower a son, 
make a daughter secure, and impact the world for good. I asked the question, as we discussed this concept a week or two ago, I said, gentlemen, how many of you men think of your father in that way? Fathers qualify for the role of fatherhood. How many of your fathers, I mean your real biological fathers, the man that has been involved with you in the role of father, how many of you have fathers who, first of all, are worthy of respect? You look at them and you say, you've walked the path and I'm proud. That's my dad over there. Take a look. I'm proud of that man. He's walked the same path. I'm on now and he's made it. Gloria Gaither published a book months ago called What My Parents Did Right. It's a brand new thought in our culture. And she asked a number of people to write articles. I was asked to write an article What My Parents Did Right. And I remember when I, when I was asked about that, a lot of thoughts went through my mind. My parents did a lot of things wrong, a lot of things right. I think they're wonderful people. And I remember when I was driving the car to church one Sunday morning, I was 16 years old. Bill was sitting in this seat over here. He was about 20. Mom and Dad were in the back seat. They were about 46, 47 years old. And I'm driving to church Sunday morning, and I'm driving along. I'm in the rearview mirror just to see cars in the back so I could know what's, when I could change lanes. And I, in the rearview mirror, I happened to catch, a, I catch the, my parents' reflection. And Dad had his arm around Mother and was kind of snuggling her. And I remember thinking, they're in their late 40s. See, <laughs> what? Does this never stop? I mean, I... I'm really impressed by the fact that my parents have been married 53 years and they still like to touch. And therefore, when they speak to me, there's a little bit of power there. They've walked the path. And I respect them in a lot of areas, and that's one. And I ask my group, any of your fathers worthy of respect? They've walked the same path. They've made it, wounded, hurting, bloody perhaps, but they've made it with honor and dignity, not without failure, but they've stayed on the path of involved, responsible living. And secondly, how many of these, how many of you would claim your father not only is worthy of respect in a way that your soul just is gripped by and you feel passionate about, but beyond that, how many of them have turned and seen you walking the same path? And saw you when you were in eighth grade and you were picked last for the baseball team and your soul was crushed. Oh, all right, everybody else is picked. You, you're on our team, right field. Something inside of you said, that doesn't feel good. You got lousy grades in college and you wondered, am I going to be a success? Dad's got money, am I ever going to have any? You had a girl, she broke the engagement. She don't want you anymore. You're a little older, you got a wife who wishes you made more money. You got a wife who says, you've got no passion, I'm tired of you. You got kids who are breaking your heart. You got jobs that are loaded with pressure. You feel weird, scared, angry, lost, empty, alone. How many of you men in this group, I asked my group last Tuesday or a couple of weeks ago, how many of fathers who know all that, or a good bit of it, sees it all, turns around, smiles, and says, You'll be all right? And then after he says it, doesn't run back to help, but keeps on walking. As a way of saying, You're on your own in a very real sense, but I believe in you. Keep me in sight and follow along. About ten men in our group, not one of the men raised their hands. Maybe that's unusual. Maybe a lot of men would raise your hands. 
Would you raise your hand if that's your father I'm describing? Raise your hand. Now keep keep them up and look around. I can see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seven, about twenty hands. We have three hundred and fifty men in the room. Now, raise your hand if you have some man, maybe not your father, but some man, who in a very rich, thorough, not just a moment or two, but an enduring, long-term relationship way, is doing that for you. Raise your hand for that. A couple of more hands, but notice not many more. I didn't count, but maybe 30 hands went up. I don't know. 30 and 20, there's 50. That's 300 of you didn't raise your hands, and 50 of you did. One gentleman in the group told of the time that he took over a store a branch of a particular company a chain and he was the branch manager of this retail store of some sort and um, he was in charge for a year and after a year the profits were down things were worse and he went to his boss and he said to his boss he told us this in group just two weeks ago he went to his boss this is some years ago and he said why haven't you fired me look at the I mean, I've been in the charge for a year now and the profits are going down and things aren't going well. Why haven't you fired me? And the boss looked at him and said, because you're a winner. And as the guy told us this story, this man in our group two weeks ago burst into tears. And then his next sentence was, as he wept, why couldn't Dad have said that? Another man in our group who feels no passion for his wife, the fellow I mentioned earlier, who says, I can't shift from a business mode to a family mode as a cop-out to avoid the paralysis and having no idea what to do. He spoke of three weeks ago, his grandmother was visiting, and he spent hours, long hours in the middle of the night talking with her a few weeks ago about his dad, her son, and about her husband, his grandfather, And he said, I found myself wanting to stay up all night just talking to my grandmother and saying, what was dad like? What was grandpa like? What what, did they think of me? And they talked for hours until the day fully ended. It was midnight or thereafter, I suppose. And the man just dissolved in tears over the father he'd never really had. There's something missing. There's something about manhood, I suggest, that it was intended to pass on life. Is that your experience? Are you passing on life? We send sperm into a womb and conception occurs. We send energy into our worlds and life occurs. We send the energy of example and confidence into our sons and courage occurs. That's the power we have. And for so many men, no one has ever sent that energy into us. Another gentleman in our group, as we talked about this, in an angry mood of almost weeping, he said, this talk about fatherhood is like a cruel joke. It's not there for most of us, never will be. Does that leave us forever? Resigned to living by code? Can we never be men without a father? The answer is no, but the answer is it's tough. Something else is missing. I have seven minutes to twelve, is that correct? 
that right? Okay. Something else is missing, and I call it brotherhood. Someone who meaningfully says, I'll listen to you. A few words on that, and we'll break for lunch. I would guess that a man in the room doesn't have a secret. There may be exceptions. Let me just see what you do with this. Maybe a few hands will go up, maybe a lot I don't know. How many of you would say that there's something that you're aware of in your life that you've told nobody and really have no plans to ever tell anybody? Something you've done, something that's happened, something you feel that in your mind is a clear secret. How many have a secret like that? You haven't told anybody at all? Now look around. That's about half the room, roughly. What's a brother for? We all live with secrets, big ones sometimes, about things we've done that just shame us. The idea of making that known would be so embarrassing we couldn't, we couldn't look at the person the next day if we're telling them this. Sometimes the little ones about weird things we feel. Or fears that strangle us, or anger that's destroying us. As I told you about feeling so irritated when my wife made that simple little comment like, well, it's where it always is. I felt a measure of shame rise up within me. I should be able to handle that. I'm a man. With whom do we share? Who has persuaded us in your life? Who has persuaded us that they want to listen without ridicule, disinterest, or advice? Who's persuaded us that they'll just listen and admit to similar things and join us in the journey? One of the things that's true about men is we tend to relate in a very solution-oriented kind of a way. We, we're just quick. Remember years ago in counseling, a woman, a very, very wealthy couple, the guy was worth, he was a, a millionaire many times over. Money was no issue at all with him. And his wife um, and he were in for marriage counseling. Her marriage was on the rocks, about ready to divorce. They were maybe 50-some years old. And, and she said to me, in the course of counseling, she said, you know, let me give you an illustration of how insensitive he is. She said, um, last night when I went to bed, we had this spring in, the, in our mattress. It's on my side that has just kind of gotten loose somehow in this inner spring mattress. And it's kind of lost where it's supposed to be. And it's kind of poking up to the mattress. And I told him last night, this thing is poking me. You know what he said? I said, what, what, what did he say? And she said, he said, I'll, I'll buy you a new one tomorrow. And my thought was, uh... <laughs> you got a problem with that lady? I mean, what's the... <laughs> Is that just how men are? I think partly. Can that be used to advantage? Is there a strength in that? Let's deal with things. Let's, with, with action, move into worlds and do something. Yeah, I think that's fair. We're more oriented that way, perhaps. But how about using our action on behalf of our wives? Well, what do you mean? I'll buy her new mattress. Is that what she wants? I don't know. Never bothered to ask. Why not? Well, because she always says things I can't understand. So you want to stay where you know what you're doing. Yeah, you want to live by code. Why? You know any man that you can share with that doesn't solve your problem in the first two minutes? You know a man that you can share with and say, I'm really hurting about this, and he looks at you and says, 
It's going to be hard. Let me tell you where I hurt too. As opposed to, well, I'm not sure if you need to worry about that much because if you take this step and this step, it'll be fine. And your response is, yeah, I know. Why have I lost my energy for solutions? As many of you know, my older brother was killed last March in an airplane crash. Last Thursday, I had breakfast with um, uh, an acquaintance. I don't know him well. He knew my brother fairly well. And after we chatted a bit, I hadn't seen him for a number of years, and he asked the kind of question that very few people ask, and I really appreciate. Tell me where you miss Bill the most, he said. Most men don't ask a question like that. They don't want to move in that deeply. Something in me just felt, gee, you want to know? I mean, how long do you, you want to listen here? Do I have 10 seconds or 10 minutes or what? And this expression on his face, I felt invited. So I talked. It was wonderful. It's rare. And what I said basically was this. I said, I think, I think my answer where I miss Bill the most is he was someone who loves my parents the way I do and nobody else in the world does. There was two boys, Bill and I. He's somebody who loves my parents the same way I do, who could talk with me about how best to love them well as they grow older. And now I have no one to share that burden with the way Bill could share it with me. My wife shares it. She's a wonderful daughter-in-law, but she's not their daughter. I have good friends who share with me their burden, but they don't have the same internal sense. All of us want a real brother. All of us want a soulmate, someone who sees our craziness and still sticks with us because he struggles too. Someone who will join arms with me and walk the path that I walk. When someone sees my struggles and listens to them and seeks to understand them, never does but tries hard and wants to stick with me even when I'm hard to handle or too weird to be open a lot of things I feel like I want to cry remember a man said to me about oh how many years four years ago a man said to me Larry um, we had lunch together we're driving back to campus after lunch the holiday inn four years ago he said you know as I get to know you a little bit a lot in your life is pretty comfortable you've got a nice job and you make enough money and got a great wife two great kids you're very blessed and I said yeah I know and he said, but you know, as I get to know you, I realize that you've got some strains and stresses that, that are unique to your situation. We all have them, but I'm getting a feel for yours. And he said, I just want you to know something. I've admired you. You wear the mantle well. I can recall the exact spot on the street where that man said that to me. I can't recall what I had for lunch, but I can recall every other detail. That meant something meant the world. Question, gentlemen. Who believes in you? Who listens to you? When we lack those elements, we rarely develop the courage to create in the midst of chaos. And even with those elements, something more is required. But it helps, and it helps a whole lot. What's wrong? We live by code, not by courage. What's missing? Fatherhood and brotherhood. What are the effects of these problems? We'll look at that at 1.30. Have a good lunch.